This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey everyone, Jeff Kasuf here with some exciting news about the 2020 United Soccer Coaches Convention in Baltimore. The Equalizer will once again be there on Podcast Row, bringing you exclusive podcast interviews with some of the best minds in the game. Registration is now open for the convention, and you can make your plans to join us in Baltimore from January 15th to the 19th for networking, coaching education, and licensing. And of course, there's the annual NWSL draft, which you can come watch as a fan. We're at the convention every year, and honestly, it's the one week on the calendar annually where everyone who's anyone in U.S. soccer is truly in the same place at the same time. Register before December 11th for the best rates by going to unitedsoccercoachesconvention.org and stop by Podcast Row to chat with your hosts from The Equalizer. That's unitedsoccercoachesconvention.org for more information. We'll see you in Baltimore. It's episode 89 of the Equalizer podcast as we come to the end of the year 2019 and the decade of the 20-teens. Dan Lawletta, Chelsea Bush, and John Halloran are hanging out with you for the next three segments of Women's Soccer Talk, and this will be the final uh, standard Equalizer podcast of 2019. Might throw you some bonus coverage over the next two weeks, but this will be the last standard Equalizer podcast, so we're going to take a look back at the year 2019, uh, but John, to get started on the year, some news from the week, Julie Ertz was named U.S. Soccer's Female Athlete of the Year, and to me, when I heard this news, I was just happy that there was an award announced in women's soccer that I actually wouldn't feel halfway embarrassed about tweeting the results of, because they actually gave the award to the by far best player that the U.S. had this season, country and club combined. I, I completely agree, and I, uh, I almost uh, messaged you because I, I texted almost the exact same thing that I think uh, – or tweeted almost the exact same thing that I think you did, which uh, was just kind of shock. I think it was the right decision, but I was more surprised that they got it right after seeing so many different awards uh, this year and, and probably every year just being uh, what seemed to be totally off base. I think Ertz was – the most important player for the U.S. this year, and and I would probably argue going all the way back to the summer of 2017. She's been the linchpin. It was putting her in that number six position, which is what completely opened up the U.S. offense. It's what allowed players like Megan Rapinoe and Tobin Heath to basically have no defensive responsibilities. It's what allowed the outside backs on the U.S. to play forward the way that Ellis wanted uh, it secured that back line and made it less exposed than we saw in the 2016 Olympics. And uh, the fact that, that she could play that position to start on a World Cup team 
and uh, obviously can play center back as she did in 2015 and start on a, on a World Cup winning team is, is unbelievably impressive. And to add to that, she, with the club, moved out of the six to be a center back, and <laughs> yeah, that that's... flipped the fortunes of her club team. So there's a little versatility at play there as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, obviously Kerr was the MVP of the league and the best player on the Red Stars, but I think you can still make an argument they don't get to the final without Hurts. Yeah, I mean, you know, when when they made that that switch to put her and her and Davidson back there as that center back combination, that was really, I think, what kind of switched them into high gear in that final stretch of the season. And like I said, you know, going all the way back to 2017 with the U.S., putting Ertz in that position is isn't really what opened things up. I don't know, you know, how many people will remember back to that summer of 2017 or even the spring of 2017, but the offense had stagnated. They couldn't figure out how to open things up. They were really kind of flailing. They were switching formations, and um, that was really what, what made the difference. They come out of that loss against Australia in the Tournament of Nations. They put Ertz there for the game. Uh, they subbed her in in the game against Brazil. That changed the fortunes in that match. They went on a few days later to beat Japan, and then they were off to the races over the past you know, two and a half years, barely uh, facing a challenge over that time, and that was because of, of using Ertz in that position. Chelsea, the flip side here is that I think a lot of us expected Megan Rapino to win this award. She won the golden ball at the World Cup, even though she probably wasn't the best player. She won the Ballon d'Or, even though she wasn't close to the best player globally over the course of the year. She even at one of the awards she got, it wasn't either one of those, but there was an award speech she gave where she kind of hinted that she realized that she was winning these awards because of some of the things she said, as opposed to some of the things she did on the field. Are you okay with Rapino winning as many awards as she did strictly because of how she carried herself and what she said off the field, or would you rather these things be straight soccer all the way? I mean, yeah, if you ask if I'm okay with it, then the answer is no. I want the best player to win at all times, regardless of what they do off the field, whether or not they score a bunch of goals, you know, because those are the ones who tend to get the most attention. Even if you're looking at defenders, it's defenders who score goals. And... So, I mean, I like the visibility that she's getting. I think that what she's saying is very important. I'm glad she's been giving an increasing platform to put that stuff out there. But, yeah, I, I want it to be soccer. And so I, I look at Ertz, and, yeah, I think I agree with what John said. I think she's been the most important and consistently the best uh, U.S. player this year for club and for country. And I'm, whether or not club form had anything to do with the award, it, it should and in my mind, they got it right on both sides. And I don't think there's even anybody else in that conversation. I mean, Rapino scored big goals in the World Cup, a lot of them from the spot, but she did nothing for club this season. I mean, who else even had a decent year on, you know, for both? Like, Press had a good World Cup and say, had some moments for club. Press, mm, Doll Kemper. You can make a case for Dunn, I think. Yeah, Dunn's an interesting one. I feel, the I feel ability, the ability to do that at left back on the international level and then do it as a number 10 on the club level is pretty impressive. Yeah, I feel a little bad for her because I don't think she's a great left back. She's obviously good enough and good enough that she can go back there when it's not her best position. But I, I don't know. I don't feel like she made a huge impact at the World Cup. But again, again she's the starting left back on the World Championship team. 
Yeah, and I mean, I think it's it's kind of like Klingenberg in 2015, where she exceeded so many expectations that I think it kind of enhanced our, our perception of her performance. I don't, I don't, again, I agree. I don't think she's the best left back option that the U.S. has. Um, I'm glad that Paul Riley hasn't succumbed to any maybe pressure to play her there. And I'm hoping well, he's that he's got the best left back we have on that same team. So, well, one of them. Um, just saying. Um, <laughs> well, let, I, <laughs> let me add, let me add this because if you look at this this situation um, with Dunn, one of the things that frustrated me about the way that the roster was constructed, um, and obviously it didn't harm the U.S.'s ability to go in and win the tournament, but with the, and this applies to both Ertz and Dunn, is that I don't think there was a true backup on the roster for either one of them. Um, you didn't really have a true number six uh, on that roster besides Ertz. And when she, when, when Ellis was pressed during the uh, press conference or the phone call that happened after the roster was announced, her answer to who your backup left back is was her starting right back was, was O'Hara. <laughs> and and right. that's fine. And O'Hara is a fine left back too. But then, you know, obviously if you move your starting right back to be your starting left back, then now you have a gap somewhere else. So the fact that Dunn was playing a position um, that would have been very, very difficult had she gone down. So if you look at like a, in terms of a most valuable situation, how would the team have done without this player? I think it's very, very difficult to see the U.S. having the same success it did. It does not on that roster. Well, especially considering that O'Hara did end up having to to go to, go out. Yeah. So then her backup had to come on. So I mean, I think you're looking at like a Krieger and Sonnet situation. Right? Yeah. By the, it end of, would, by it the final. It no, it would not have been good. Yeah, I don't want to take anything away from, from Dunn doing what she did. I, I think she had a fine World Cup. I think, again, she exceeded expectations. I did not have a whole lot of faith in her going into the World Cup. She'd had some, some rocky moments kind of getting, I guess you would say, reused to the position. But I'm just hoping that moving forward that, that Vlaco, you know, sees that she's better elsewhere and that he has better options at left back. Because I always thought that Dunn at left back was more a matter of getting her on the pitch because she wasn't going to beat out Morgan or Pino or Heath up top. She's right. not great in a three-person midfield. So it was kind of a place to get her into that starting lineup. And, and it, it's, I think, a, a weakness of Ellis that I'm, I'm hoping we've moved on from. I also it's, feel like Dunn is the one player on that national team that I wish didn't have to go to the World Cup. And what I mean by that is she was so good in those first three or four games, whatever it was, for the courage before those players left for the World Cup. I think she was a standout best player in the league for that first month of the season, better than any other player that went to the World Cup. So she's the one player that I wish we could have seen stay on the club scene and see how good a season she could have had. Because I thought she was okay when they came back, but not great, which applied to most of the players from the World Cup when they came back. I don't think anybody was really great for club afterwards. Yeah, she for sure was the best one, the, the MVP going into the, the World Cup, for sure. As long as we're on the topic of the World Cup and we're kind of trying to review 2019, I think we've got an interesting mix here because we have John, who was in France. I know you don't always like to be reminded of this, but you were in <laughs> France for 37 days, something like that. Yeah, 31. Um, I was there for 10 and Chelsea, unfortunately, was a television viewer for the entire tournament. So I, I also don't like to be reminded of that. Thanks, Dan. <laughs> okay, fair enough, fair enough. So I got it split down the middle here with my week and a half. 
in France. Um, but John just, you know, six months after the fact, five, six months after the fact, just, you know, how has it settled in for you that you were able to a cover an entire world cup and just what, you know, how did you, how will you think you'll remember it now a few months later? Um, that's a good question. I don't know if I've completely, completely processed that. Um, you know, I obviously physically did not enjoy the experience uh, a lot um, between coffee and lack of air conditioning and the hotel rooms and, and some transportation woes. But uh, I think in terms of having the opportunity, you know, that sounds a little ungrateful because just being able to do that, uh, to have, you know, the time to do it, to have the resources to do it, to, you know, obviously have my family be okay with me being on for a month. Um you know, I'm obviously very grateful for that. And then, you know, the fact that they won the tournament, too, I think, you know, as much as we are tasked with being neutral, um, obviously, it's it's more exciting for us to see storylines that we are interested in and ones that we know well. Uh, and it's obviously easier to write about that than had the U.S. been knocked out against Spain in the round of 16, um, you know, and then having to kind of to see how you cover the tournament at that point. So um, obviously very grateful for the experience, you know, it might never happen again, but uh, you know, obviously I don't miss France, the country. Very much. <laughs> I was actually, and, and you know, I got there, like I said, I got there for the quarterfinal. I think I first saw you the next night and I could tell that France had already <laughs> taken its toll yeah. from you. Yeah. And uh, my family came with me for the 10 days. and I, We were actually out with another couple recently. And, you know, someone we, people we don't see very often, they were saying, how was France? And we were telling them about France. And we kept having to qualify by saying, but it was a great trip. Because right. we were just, you know, right. it was 95 degrees and you couldn't, you know, there weren't a lot of amenities that we're used to. And, you know, it seemed at times like the country really didn't want the World Cup to be there. Or it was kind of like an afterthought. Or didn't being, know. In some cases, yeah, ex exactly. <laughs> you know, um, I was you, having I was having dinner with a friend of mine who came over with me for the first two weeks, and we were still just like flabbergasted that when we got to La Havre, that people couldn't even tell us that there was a bus system or how it worked or where <laughs> it went. You know, it was insane. Yeah, and and you know, I did, I went to Canada for the same amount of time, got there for a quarterfinal and stayed through the final. And obviously Canada is a lot easier of a trip because it's basically like being in the United States. But the cities I was in in Canada were way more in tune with the World Cup going on than they were in France. And you would think that would be the opposite, right? You'd think when you go yeah. to Europe, that would be a little bit more so. Um, Chelsea, what, what, what are your memories, you know, strictly from the fan standpoint or, you know, watching on television for the month? Um... I, I think it's kind of grown on me. I think after the fact, I wouldn't say I didn't like it, but there were aspects of it I didn't like. And I think as it's settled in and it's gotten further away, I'm come to, I, I kind of look back on it a little bit more fondly, which I guess is an odd thing to say about something that was only, what, six months ago. You, mean, you didn't um, like the tournament or you didn't like not being there? Well, I didn't, I still don't like not being there, <laughs> but you know, there was just some, some aspects of the tournament I didn't enjoy. You know, for instance, I think you, you look at those, you know, final four, and you're you're looking at what Europe and the U.S. Yeah, final eight um, was Europe and the U.S. wasn't it? Right. So I think maybe you're right. So yeah, I would have liked to. I would like to see Woso grow a little bit more. I thought we were beyond that point. And obviously, Japan has had success in the past. China before that. Um, but you know, I, I expected more out of Australia. I'd like to see 
Brazil kind of, you know, get back up there. I'd like to see African teams. I'd like to see more Asian teams. You know, I just, I would like to see the game grow, basically. And I thought that the World Cup wasn't as much a reflection of that as, as I'd hoped. But, you know, we saw some, some debutantes. That was fun. I'm, I'm continuing to enjoy that basically everything the Netherlands does ever. Um, going back to the Euros, you know, they're, they're just a joy to watch. And the fact that they've embraced their women's team so much is, um, is fun, right? I, I think we should see more of that. So, yeah, I mean, it was, it was good. And like John said, at the end of the day, the U.S. won. And, you know, we want that. I mean, I think I can speak for any U.S. media person out there that says at the end of the day, you still want the U.S. to win. Right, I, I can't be the only one thinking that. It's well, I want, I want more, the, it's more fun for sure. I it want is. them to be prominent. I don't know if I want them to win. I want them to be prominent. Okay, that's fair enough. Because I because I think you know they've won twice in a row now. They win the next one, then you I start. Know, that, that gets boring. Right, then you start to reverse course of like, well, where are all these other teams? Like, why, why isn't anybody else yeah. winning? But is it time to maybe look back on how the Netherlands played in that final? and be kind of impressed that that was an actual game into about the 70th minute, considering they had played extra time with less rest and they had a couple of other things go against I mean, them. And they, and they weren't as good. Let's face it, the U.S. is better. Yeah, like I don't felt, I never felt like the outcome was in question, even though maybe they, they kept it closer than some. Um, they kept themselves in the game. But it, to me, it never, ever felt like they were going to take the lead or pull out a win. Well, that's how I felt about the France game. And everyone was telling me how great the France game was, and I was like, well, I never really felt the U.S. was ever going to lose that game. You didn't feel like the last 15 minutes when the stadium got real, real loud um, and the fans really got behind France and the U.S. went into that shell and they were playing in the five back. I don't know. I thought that there was definitely a moment there that France could have taken advantage of. There were some moments. It wasn't as much of a nail-biter, say, as, like, the England game, where that one had me just on the edge of my seat the entire time. For me, that was probably one of the most exciting games in that tournament. Yeah, I thought that was... bailed them out, too. Yeah. Twice. That that was the best game of of that three-game segment, the sequence there, was the England game. Because I did think England could could win that game. I don't know why, but I just never saw France tying it up. And you're right, John, the stand, I was in the stands for that game. The stadium was electric toward yeah. the end. I'm not sure what took them, maybe because the U.S. scored <laughs> early, but it wasn't that electric. Like, until France got the one goal back, that's when it started to, to, really, right. to really escalate. All right, segment one in the books. We'll come back with a little bit more about the Woso happenings of 2019 with Chelsea and John. I'm Dan on the Equalizer podcast. Segment two, episode 89 of the Equalizer podcast. Dan Loletta with Chelsea Bush and John Halloran with a reminder to please rate and review the Equalizer podcast today and to check us out on the web at equalizersoccer.com and for enhanced women's soccer coverage, equalizersoccer.com slash extra this week, Jeff Kasuf with a deep dive into Kate Markgraf's plans to keep the U.S. women's national team on top of the world, which was what we kind of came out of that last segment discussing. But uh, let's talk about the NWSL, our favorite league, our favorite league to pick on, our favorite league to cover. Uh, it was an interesting year. I didn't think this was like the best year that we could have asked for in the NWSL. I thought it was kind of predictable. Last offseason, there wasn't a lot of player movement. But I don't think we should sell short 
how not only how good the North Carolina coverage are, but how willing they are to be great all the time. If you listen to me a lot, I've said that a lot. But, you know, again, John, I'll start with you because, you know, we were at the final together and we watched them just blow the doors off the Chicago Red Stars in that match. You're but just, just, you're go just going to keep rubbing in the games I'm looking at, aren't you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because <laughs> you need to be at these things. You in have one bad year. <laughs> you need to be in Tokyo 2020 and at the NWSL final, assuming we get a location for that. But just. You know, so many teams would take off a lot more nights than the Courage. And they had a couple of more dips this year than in, the, obviously, the year before, which was just one of those magical years. But they just want to be great. It's incredible. Yeah, well, I think the thing that was most impressive to me that we saw in the final this year, and actually I think we saw it in the final last year too, was their ability to go to another gear when when it matters. And they did it last year to Portland in Portland. They did it this year at home to Chicago, but just turning it up a notch and just watching them run away from the team that they're playing. And, um, you know, as you mentioned, they, they utterly dominated Chicago, and I felt they did the same thing last year in the final. It's just so impressive. You know, one of the things I think that we forget is that this league, at least in theory, is built to be competitive, to keep the teams, you know, at least at a, a relative starting point of equality. And North Carolina, um, certainly not with the least amount of resources in the league, but certainly not the most amount of resources in the league, has managed to create this this dynasty, you know, four finals in a row, three championships. It's incredible what Paul Riley and his staff have done down there, putting that team together and then, you know, the players – being able to perform at the level they have over the time period that they have. Chelsea, jump right in. Well, once I stop pouting. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I've, I've spoken about this before. I'm, I'm kind of mixed. Like, on the one hand, I do think it's very impressive what the Courage have been able to do. Um, but to, to what John said, the, the league is built to be competitive. But I think... This season kind of really nailed it in how it's it's not, though. You know, year after year, we have the same playoff teams. You kind of have the same teams at the bottom, with the exception of, of the Spirit. You have the same teams in the middle. You know, it just it's becoming very, it's becoming kind of repetitive, and it's becoming um, predictable. And nothing to take away from teams being consistently good. I just would like to see the rest of the teams make it a little bit more competitive. But I think that's more about what the other teams aren't doing. Oh, for you know, sure. For sure, for sure. You know, it's not like Lyon and PSG are the only teams in France that are spending. Because if you look at what the Courage have done, I mean, they drafted Mewis and Dahlkemper, and they turned them into national team players that they now don't have to pay. They were the team that went out and made the done trade. Yeah, they had the resources to make that trade, but they went out and did that trade. Uh, you know, they got Dabinia out of the Olympics and – She's been marvelous. You know, Denise O'Sullivan was in Houston and couldn't make the 18, and now she is an absolute every week. She's in the starting 11 for the best team in the league, if not the world. Yeah. You have to wonder what goes on elsewhere. I think you could say the same thing about Chicago, too, as far as building out of the draft, acquiring these players. Um, You know, you, you look at Nagasato, like, for, for not being one to use internationals when when Dames does, he makes it count, right? Yep. Um, 
so yeah, I, I think that I'm not like again, I'm not taking anything away from these teams or, or Portland or the rain or you know even, even Utah a little bit. Uh, I, I do think it's it's a message to the other teams to step it up. I'm just I'm hoping that they do sooner rather than later. So what's our overall vibe on on 2019 for the league? It was good, but it should have been better. I mean, league-wide, you know, they just did not take advantage of that World Cup bump. It, it was there, right? We saw that massive, you know, sellout in Chicago. We saw Washington, you know, in their crowds at Audi. We saw Sky Blue do that, you know, um, bringing the games to Red Bull Arena. But, man, does it feel like there were some missed opportunities. They got one big national sponsor out of it, which, fine, that's great. But where where was the follow-up to that? Where's the TV contract for 2020? You know, why are you off a World Cup bump giving away your broadcast rights? Why can't you sell those? It just, and then this whole thing with this hesitation over Sacramento, it just feels like this, I hate to say this because, you know, I know that there are individuals who are putting a lot of their own capital behind this, but there's so many times that this feels like amateur hour. You know, you can't get teams to call you back when you want to, um, you know, do things to, to promote their players or their teams. You can't get, you know, the league office to communicate with you. The league office went through, you know, two different PR people this year and went long stretches without having a person in that position in a world cup year. It just feels like there was a lot of opportunity that was squandered both during and following the world cup as good as it was. And there was a lot of positives and there's a lot to, to talk about. There's there's still this feeling, I think, among a lot of us that it's it should have been better. And I don't think a lot of us are that confident that they're going to be able to sustain this in sort of the meaningful way that they need to. Because, listen, the owners, they they're putting their money behind this right now. They, they've decided to jump in with these big allocation, you know, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, expansion of, of what uh, of, of what they're going to be willing to spend on rosters and housing. Um, but now we're seeing U.S. soccer, which seems to kind of be backing away from how much they want to support the league. And, you know, are these owners jumping off the cliff and everybody's just kind of leaning over and looking over and going, oh, we hope this works out. Um, this is this is still for all we talk about the success, for all we talk about this being year seven. There's there's still a precipice here that 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 I think we need to, you know, I think for a lot of us causes some angst. It's beautiful. I'm glad I'm glad you said that, not me, because I have the reputation of being someone that people think I hate the league. You're I, the curmudgeon. Exactly. So I'm glad that you actually are the one that said that. And while you were saying that, I double checked Sky Blue and the Rain FC's websites, and they both have 2020 season tickets coming soon. Yeah, that's not good. And, 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 that needed to be done before the end of the season. And I realized, like, especially with Sky Blue, that probably was a stadium situation. And with the rain, it might have something to do with the, the Leon takeover. But, yeah, it's not good. But you need to maintain momentum. It feels yep. like you're working on a school science project and you don't want to show your friends until you've completed it. But – that's something that gets graded all in one shot, whereas you can't have, you know, Sky Blue had these great crowds, the rain had great crowds, but where's the momentum that has, that takes us from, I mean, there hasn't been a game, what, end of 
no, second week of October, I guess, was the last regular season game. So it's two months, and you don't even have season tickets on sale. People forget. You know, you don't. This is not ingrained in people's world like some of the other sports right. we have in this country at this point. People will forget about this league quickly. They also make great Christmas presents. Absolutely. Does that mean you got me season tickets to to the first team? I was hinting for you to put that on my list, so glad you picked is, up on that. Because there's also one team, and I won't say who it is yet, but there's a team on complete media shutdown right now. Won't give. Won't give access to players, coaches, front office. Like it just, it doesn't make any sense to me, at all. You know, to add to this too, NWSL media virtually shuttering in the middle of a World Cup year. It was just insane to watch as well. Yep, and and if you looked closely, you could tell a lot of the, the kind of fallback from that. Now, oh, the website, the tweets, the all of yep. it was just at a just at a distinctly lower quality than it was a year ago. Now, all that said, do we have a positive memory of the season, like best game, <laughs> best performance, best goal, best yeah, something? Because, I mean, it's it's like a tale of two leagues, right? Like, on the field, I, I think that the quality is good, and there's a lot to enjoy. It's more the yeah. off the field. And there is, there is good. I mean, you look at this, the 2019 season and the 2013 season. I mean, it is night and day. Like, that they oh, have – they have come a long way, and I think attendance was really pretty good this year, especially for a club like like Sky Blue that had really, really, really been struggling. Um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I, I'd hazard a guess as to most, if not all, probably improved their average attendance over last year. Pretty so, sure every, every team was up this year. Yeah, so, I mean, it's that's good. Um, got some games on ESPN. I think that's good. Yeah. Um, you know, we talk about favorite game. I'd have to think about all the games I wasn't able to attend in person. That just makes me sad again. So. I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> um, couple, the two, I'll tell you, two of the standouts to me are the Chicago-Portland 4-4 game, which was, I think, maybe week two of the yeah. season, and the game when the rain beat the Royals to essentially, not officially, but essentially clinch the playoff spot. It was in Utah. Was it? Did they was that the game that got delayed by a week? No, I don't think so because it, it was got delayed in Tacoma that first one. All right, that, yeah, you're right, but it maybe it changed the dynamic of rest or something like that. But it like the rain were just up against it the entire, pretty much for, for like the whole second half of the season after Fishlock went out, and just the fact that they were able to figure out how to win that game was was very impressive to me. And the Vlako Andonovsky just gets the best of Laura Harvey no matter what they do. Uh, yeah. That kind of just continued right there. So those those are two that come to mind for me. I, I think guess the final, else. you know, which which we already talked about, and then um, you know, you mentioned Chicago Portland. That semifinal game was pretty special too. I remember, um, you know, obviously Chicago hadn't beaten them since 2013, I believe. Yeah, um, they had beaten them once, 2013. Yeah, so. So you look at that being this, you know, whatever it was, six-year span um, of not beating them and then being able to beat them in the playoff when it mattered to do it at home. And I very clearly remember this the this moment at the end of the game where there was maybe two or three minutes left and Yuki Nagasato had the ball and she took it into the corner and she held off about three Portland players on her own. And every time she did – the crowd amped up and amped up, and this was all happening in front of the the supporters group, uh, Local 134, 
that was, I think, you know, at least for the Chicago fan base, a, a pretty special moment to be able to witness. And the flip side about that game is I know you were at that game. My memory of that game is a little bit skewed, and you're right, Nagasato killed off that game maybe better than I've ever seen in the NWSL, but because I thought watching the second half of that game, there's no way the Red Stars hold on playing like this and win one nothing, and they figured out how to do it. Yeah. But to me, that game is memorable, memorable because getting back to the TV contract, they had the games back-to-back. So the rain tied up that game in North Carolina, which you, it's easier to forget now because the Courage ran away with the three goals in extra time. But I actually was only watching with half an eye when Kerr scored the goal because I still had the Courage rain extra time on. Sure. And how do you have a TV deal for the playoffs that's two hours back-to-back? I mean, how many knockout games in soccer go to extra time? In a good league, I would say it's, what, 30 to 40%? Yeah, and I'd rather see a Saturday Sunday semi semi. That that too, but I mean, you got to at least leave time for extra time in there. Yeah. Chelsea yeah, any no game. Question. I mean, if that goes to if that goes to penalties, now you're talking about another twenty minutes. Oh, absolutely. On top of it. Yeah, and you could kind of take your eye off it because at four one, the rain were not coming back. I'm not even sure how they came back from one nothing to be honest. Right. With you. you know, even three one was pretty much over. Chelsea, any of the games that you were not at um, stand, stand out? Wow. Um, no, you know, I'm not, I don't necessarily have as good of a memory as, as some people on this podcast will <laughs> mention by name. I enjoyed both the semifinals, or at least I'll say I enjoyed the fact that Chicago was able to not only kind of get that semifinal thing off their backs, but do it at home against Portland, who they hadn't beaten, like John said. Um, the game itself, I thought Portland by that point was just pretty woeful. Um, I never really thought they were yeah. they were going to win that game. Um, and I enjoyed the, the 90 minutes, the first 90 of the rain in North Carolina semifinal. I did not enjoy extra time because um, at that point you just – it's it's pretty sad to see a kind of a – a team hang on for so long and then just get completely destroyed in extra time. Yeah, great goal, though, to go up to, to, to being your free kick was pretty nice. And then after yeah. that, it was downhill. Yeah, I mean, I'm, for me, it's it's more just the, the players kind of, you know, I enjoy watching Kristen Press when she is having fun playing soccer is something that is, is immensely enjoyable. And she is someone who is very, so, very clearly obvious when she's having fun and enjoying herself versus when she's not. And I thought she enjoyed herself a lot with Utah this year. Um, so I, I like, I like watching her, uh, Sam Kerr basically destroying any goalkeeper she comes across. That was enjoyable, especially because, you know, with hindsight, we're not going to see that every week for the time being. I feel like we'll see it in the future, but you know, for right now, unless we, you can catch those overseas games. We're not going to see that next season. I think um, my – go ahead. No, no, you're, go ahead. I, I think my favorite game overall this year was Norway-Australia World Cup round of 16. I thought that's Why? the best. Why? Why? I thought it was an incredibly <laughs> in, intense game, and I thought both, I thought there were good performances on both sides, and it was – Exciting to the finish? No, you mm-hmm. don't think so? I mean, it was intense. Um, I actually felt kind of let down by Australia in that game. I, I thought they could have been better. Well, that, that, I mean, that, that's fair. Now, John, let me ask you this on Chicago. 
did the way the final went down detract at all from the fact that they finally beat Portland and finally got to the final? It didn't for me. Um, I think maybe, you know, for the players it did. You know, we we had a chance to see them and talk to them a little bit later that night. And um, and I've talked to a few of them since. And, I, you know, actually, um, <laughs> I just spoke to Sarah Gordon before she went into this U.S. camp, and she said, you know, she still hasn't been able to sit down and watch the final game. Um, and I talked to um, – one of the assistant coaches who said he's watched it repeatedly. So yeah. Um, yeah, everybody you know, handles like, these things differently. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you, when you have a game like that, you're, it, it's going to obviously damper, um, you know, the accomplishment that you had, but um, it was, it was a great season. It was nice to see them get over the hump. I always thought it was a little bit stupid that people thought it was such a big deal because, you know, they had made the playoffs four times in a row and, that's an accomplishment in and of itself, especially when you see some of the teams in this league that just flail so consistently. Um, but, but no, I thought, uh, you know, and I think it was a big deal for the fans. I thought, uh, like I said, there's, there's been a transition, I think league wide, but I've especially seen it in Chicago where the, the league uh, is starting to move away from this push towards marketing everything towards children and families and pushing a little bit more into an adult fan culture. And I think that's something that needs to happen. And I think that that is happening in Chicago. And um, I think a moment like this season certainly helps that process. I think every time you look, whenever women's sports has trended to the adult marketing, it has worked. It's only usually been in the short term. But it has always worked out, I think, when they have done it that way. Uh, before we end the segment, you want to break the tie on Norway, Australia? Honestly, I don't even remember. Ah, uh, so basically, I you're think, that's siding with Chelsea by default. Yeah, I think I As he should. Game in the lobby of a hotel, and I was half conscious, and it was like midnight or whatever time it was, eleven. So I don't even remember it. I'll tell you what game I don't remember was uh, Sweden-Germany quarterfinal, which I was telling everybody that would listen that Sweden had a big chance and might win that game. And I had such a problem commuting. I was going from a hotel to an Airbnb. And uh, I'll spare you the details, but I got stuck in a parade and, and couldn't figure out how to get there. And I wound up first. I was like, well, I'll miss the first half hour. And I'll miss the first half. And I was like, well, maybe it'll go to extra time. And then it by that point, I was like, I really don't care. Just want to get to wasn't my, that, a, wasn't that like a snooze fest? What, where I got stuck? No, the German. Oh, I have no game. idea. I was trying to navigate through through, uh, through a Paris parade. Because there were some there were some rough games in the knockout rounds. Some really really rough. Games. Hot. Yeah, well, right right before that, I watched was it Italy Netherlands and it was oh, like a hundred degrees. Gosh, and they were playing. In like slow motion, it was terrible. Yeah. I mean, I don't blame them. It no. was very hot, but it was not. It was not exhilarating soccer. Put it no. that way. All right, let's do one more segment. We've asked for some of your memories of the year, so we'll uh, talk about that and uh, maybe add a couple more of ours. You're listening to episode 89 of the Equalizer podcast. 
Third and final segment of the Equalizer podcast, episode 89, final standard podcast of 2019. But stay tuned for some potential bonus footage coming your way. And it is time for the Equalizer Soccer Sports Reference Stat of the Week, brought to you by our friends at Sports Reference. Check out their ever-growing catalog of women's soccer stats at fbref.com. We talked about Julie Ertz being the U.S. Soccer Female Athlete of the Year. She is now the 10th woman to win that award multiple times. The top two winners there, as you may have guessed, Mia Hamm and Abby Wambach both won it five times. Mia five times in a row. Abby spread hers out a little bit. Michelle Akers won it three times. Other players who have won it twice, April Heinrichs, who uh, some might remember as the coach of the national team, Tiffany Milbert, Christine Lilly, Alex Morgan, Carly Lloyd, and Corinne Gabar, Karen Gabara, who was the wife of former Spirit and Sky Blue and Washington Freedom head coach, Jim Gabara. So number 10 is uh, Julie Ertz in terms of winning that award multiple times. And the award was first handed out in 1985, one year after uh, the men started their award in 1984. So congratulations to Julie Ertz, and make sure you check out Sports References Women's Soccer Stats Catalog. You can find it at fbref.com. Uh, we got some Q&A, a couple of finishing touches on the year, but I want to mention one thing uh, that's a moment that stands out to me, and then if you guys want to chime in with maybe something of yours. This is not something that happened in a game, but when Rapino got announced as the Golden Ball winner and she walked out and she looked at the fans and she opened up both arms, I've never, certainly not in person, but I've never felt more strongly than at that moment that than that particular athlete just had the entire world in the palm of her hands in that moment. And I've written about it and I've talked about it a lot, but I continue to be just so impressed with how Megan Rapinoe has handled the entire year on the field and off the field. And that moment will stick with me forever from the 2019 World Cup. She had a good year. And I think, you know, the thing that you talk about, or at least we talked about earlier, was, you know, the way that, she spoke out on so many different things. I think the thing, I, and I know she's a lightning rod, um, especially right now in this country at this time, but I think when people, if people would listen to the, the totality of her statements, there's an incredible amount of nuance in those statements that I think gets left out of headlines or pull quotes that we see on social media. And I think also if any one of us had to speak about contemporary political issues, we would sound like a complete buffoon next to uh, her ability to uh, explain her position and why she believes what she does. It's um, I, I respect it just from a communications uh, point of view that she's able to speak as eloquently as she does on the issues that she does. Chelsea, are we leaving it there? Yeah, all, all good things. All right, let's get to some of what uh, was sent in to us. Xandra White commented, and this is another little news item. Um, th this is about four countries have actually put in final bids to host the 2023 World Cup. We could probably rant the rest of the time about how there needs to be a host selected well sooner than the previous World Cup, not over, you know, about a year into it. But we're going to get a decision in June, they say. But anyway, it's Brazil, 
Colombia, Japan, and then an Australian-New Zealand joint bid. So that's your little news item. But Xandra White says... Uh, very bluntly, is there any way to influence the selection besides sending FIFA officials lots of gifts? Brazil seems like the shiny choice, but it had almost as many infrastructure problems for the 2014 men's as France did for the 2019 women's. But I think the 14 men's actually helps them because the stadiums are there and, you know, they built a lot of those for that event. But I have no idea who the front runner for this would be. I think it's... I'm on record as saying it's unlikely that I'll attend in any of those countries, at least the way things are right now. Um, any thoughts on the bidding for 2023? I think that uh, maybe they should ask Qatar how <laughs> you go about getting a World Cup. <laughs> <laughs> they'll, have stayed, they'll have freshly built stadiums, too. <laughs> Just saying. I might have some advice. All right. Donna Housley, the money U.S. soccer has wasted on lawyers that could have been used to help youth development, equal pay for U.S. WNT, and so many other things that support their nonprofit mission of growing the game of soccer in the U.S. Thanks. So that's not a question. Um, and let me just go to uh, Danielle Goronsky, also said uh, the inequity of the U.S. national team money that goes into MLS but none into NWSL, salaries excluded. Could U.S. money be channeled into the NWSL um, and U.S.? men's money into the MLS. I don't, on that one, I don't think it's fair to compare the relationship between the leagues and the federation, but I, you have to assume that the federation has gone and done some math here and decided that it's cheaper to pay lawyers than pay the players, right? I mean, they can't just be standing on principle on this, can they? Because it would be a bad principle to stand on. Some principle and, and pride in there, but no, I honestly think that they think they can win that, and they're they might. Just one thing to add to that overall question was that uh, it's important to remember too that the men's national team has a relationship with MLS through some that uh, the NWSL does not benefit from, and that uh, the men's national team and MLS uh, jointly market their rights in a way that the NWSL doesn't. And I think that leaves the NWSL out of deals that they could make in conjunction with the women's national team. Great point. I uh, also want to add that I'm just like that they, they brought up that U.S. soccer is a nonprofit um, because I think that certain people, cough, cough, revenue argument could uh, stand to remember that. Also, it is a bad it's bad optics to be paying lawyers instead of paying the players, but it doesn't mean that it's costing them more money to do it that way. It'll be an interesting 2020 for sure. Uh, back to Danielle. If the NWSL doesn't continue to change for the better, it will be surpassed by Europe. Do you think an independent NWSL without U.S. soccer running it can bring about these opportunities? Uh, I mean, we're at the precipice of something changing, but if you read... I think it was Caitlin Murray that had a story this week about how U.S. soccer didn't, you know, they, NW, the NWSL is trying to get away more than U.S. soccer wants it to get away, but the NWSL doesn't want to completely get away. So U.S. soccer wants it more on their terms. Really fascinating stuff going on. And I think that's why we don't have a decision about Sacramento. I think that's why we don't have, I mean, the, all the other stuff is based on the Sacramento decision, I think. Uh, but I know, John, you've been doing a little digging on this, too. I mean, it, 
you know, something's changing here, and I, we'll see what happens. Well, there's there's a the the question at its base is yes, they can succeed separate, but they need money. They need investment. We know that a handful of the owners are struggling right now to be able to have enough capital to run their teams. And that's not going to get easier. That's going to get harder with them spending, you know, up to, uh, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars more now in allocation money with them now being mandated to provide year round housing. Um, there needs to be a cash injection, whether that's more wealthy investors buying ownership stakes in the team or whether that's expansion, you know, fees or, or a t- big TV deal or more national sponsors. But they have to find a way to bring more cash into the league. That is the number one issue right now. Yeah. That is an excellent point because I think people like to throw out things like pay the players more and do this and do that. Well, it's, it's all got to come from somewhere. Right. They don't have an unlimited fund sitting out there. They're just not tapping into it. It has to come from somewhere. I'm going to say this about the Europe thing. If you look at the history of Major League Soccer, uh, that league still lags pretty far behind the best leagues in the world, and the absolute best players are never coming here in their prime at you know, the way MLS runs now. But there's an awful lot of really good players that are looking for an excuse to play soccer in the United States. So I don't know that Europe is just going to blow by the NWSL as quickly as some people think. I think people want to be in the United States still, believe it or not. That, that's I, my I two just, cents on that. I just want to know, like, when you say, like, Europe is going to pass this up, like, that's a really broad statement. Yep. Who who exactly are you talking about? The FAWSL, Frauen Bundesliga, uh, French League, which you can't just say Europe. That is... I even know I don't even know how many leagues are in Europe, but there's a lot. Well, I think the general the general notion is we're going to get more Sam Kerr's going to Europe than we're going to get Kim Little's coming here. It might happen, you know. There's there's no question about that. But at the it same might. time, I think what what Chelsea is saying is is a good point because the French league outside of the top two teams is pretty weak. The Spanish league is is pretty bad. Um, maybe England, I think, you know, in terms of being competitive across the board is stronger than the other ones, but there's, there's an a overall weakness that you don't see and in I just, the NWSL. And I also just think that the, the perception that you can go to Europe and make, you know, millions and millions of dollars or however much money they think is, is, is skewed. Um, I think there yeah. are a handful of teams that are willing to shell out, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars half a million, whatever, to a very uh, select group of players. Um, right. It's probably it, 15 to 20 players across the world that they're willing to do that. For. Exactly. And it's only a couple of teams, and it's only for a couple of players. It's not like anyone, you know, Haley Mace going to Sweden did not rake in $400,000 a year. Right. right. You know, I, I just think the perception is, is skewed, and I think that plays a big role in this idea that they're passing up. But it also goes hand in hand with the idea that, um, you know, all these other national teams are passing the U.S. Well, you know what? World champs again. Yeah. So, at the end of the day, <laughs> the, I'm not there's not a valid is, argument at the level of it. I just think it gets very overblown and very generalized. The other thing is you go to play for Lyon, you don't play many games in the stadium where the U.S. won the World Cup. You don't play in those stadiums. Right. You come here to play for the Thorns, you play in the Timber Stadium, and they darn near fill it like the Timbers do every week. Yeah. All right, um, let's see where we're going next here. Let's go to 
Godwin O'Coley. My high of the season was going to Red Bull Arena for the first time for any game to watch Sky Blue FC. I had only previously been to Yankee Stadium for NYC FC games. The worst thing about the NWSL is having an odd number of teams and having one team not play every week. Uh, I think we all agree with we all agree with that second part. I mean, you don't add or subtract teams just for that reason. And I think the M, you know MLS has proven that when you have like 21 or 23 or whatever, that it's not as big of a deal. But yeah, the schedule is is so choppy with the Wednesday, especially when you go dark for the FIFA weeks and then someone doesn't play the week before and the week after. So then they basically have three weeks in between games. Uh, but glad you enjoyed yourself uh, at Red Bull. Deanna Nealand, equal pay. Uh, abnormally late in timeline for 2023 World Cup, hosting bid college proposal for two seasons and implications on the women's college game on all levels. Katerina Macario relative to US WNT. Admittedly, these are half review, review and half preview. Uh, anyone want to jump in on any of these topics? We did the hosting already. I think Macario is eligible next year. And, I, um, I thought it was had, 21. It might be, but they also 22. said that, I don't think it's next year. They said during the broadcast of the College Cup that Blanco has been in communication with her and actually invited her to the ID camp, but she had a commitment in Brazil. So I don't think that she's off their radar by any means. I think they're well aware uh, of her and and want to do what they can to bring her in. We don't talk a lot of college, but any thoughts on the two semesters, you know, playing? Oh, that would be such a good thing. I am praying that goes through. It would be so so much better for their development as players. The season the way it is now, it's very compressed. It does not set them up well to play professionally, and I think it also sets them up um, for a, a higher injury uh, potential of playing the, the two games so close together and coming in and out, and I, I hate the college setup. And I was reading that the U.S. Open Cup, the Men's U.S. Open Cup, moved their schedule up a little bit, and teams that usually – have college players, the college players won't be eligible on time because they still can't play for those teams until April or May, something like that, which seems, I mean, it's the NCAA, so I'm not really surprised. But I I think there's a disconnect, too, because the women, college is still where most female players come of age, whereas it's really not the pathway. If If you're a halfway decent male player now, you're not playing NCAA soccer. And, and, and so it's kind of a shame that they have to run on the same pathway. But I do agree that playing fall and spring would be would be great, developmentally speaking. Siobhan MC, so I'm sure you've all I'm sure you have all of the USWNT stuff covered. So a couple of NWSL highlights that Utah Portland game. Bethany Balser coming from nowhere. Louisville announcement. Becky Salabrun scoring. The rise of some younger goalkeepers, Murphy, Sheridan, and Bledsoe in particular. John, I know you want to run on the Casey Murphy topic. Yeah, least. I just think I, we failed to mention when we were talking about that North Carolina rain game that Murphy was spectacular, and she's the one that kept them in that game as long as they were. Um, and also, I love the Balser story. I mean, to, to take a, a player from NAIA, you know, bring her into the league to see her have the success that she did. I think that's just one of those great stories. And that was uh, really enjoyable to follow this season. And it wasn't like Balser um, dipped at the end of the season. She had a little dip in the middle of the season and then came back, which is almost unheard of for a rookie in any sport. 
And she was scoring big goals in big games, and the team made the playoffs. It wasn't like she was just a nothing player on a team that had an empty spot because they weren't very good. And she was also doing it. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was uh, just going to say, and she's doing it at doing it at the end of the season. Means she's doing it when the U.S. players are back or the internationals are back. So she's doing it against a tougher level of competition. Um, Also, I. Absolutely, I'm on the Aubrey Bledsoe bandwagon this year. Haven't always been. Louisville announcement is interesting as a topic because they announced and then they kind of confirmed that their name was going to be Proof Louisville FC, which whatever. It's but dumb. We've seen we've seen names come and go before, but that is like one of those things where they were like, "All right, we got this expansion team, and now we're going to put you all away for about a year, and we won't mention you again." And I recently was on their site, and there's almost there's basically no uh, meaning the Louisville City USL site. There's basically no mention of the women's team, so it's one of those things. It's like just you know they announced it, but is it really happening? I'm sure it is, but you know it's another example of you have this chance to get momentum with the early announcement. Are you going to take it, or are, you, are we just going to sit on it for a while? Also, the Utah Portland and what am I? What Utah Portland game am I forgetting that was memorable? I don't know. I mean, if you don't remember, <laughs> well, you know, Chelsea. Some of us were in France for a while, so you know, we, we, we didn't get Daniel. To see, <laughs> we didn't wow. get to see all the games. I'm, I know one. One of their games was zero zero. I'm pretty sure. So. But, hey, I hope somebody else who's listening remembers fondly that Utah-Portland game. Uh, Dan Smith, two things. Who's going to step up and challenge North Carolina, and what about the year that the rain had? Right now, nobody's challenging North Carolina if they come back the same in terms of motivation and health. And the rain – I think the rain had the most – I think the rain this year are the most unlikely playoff team we've ever seen based on how many injuries they had. I mean, the thing about the rain, too, is is the big thing in the air is who's going to be their coach. Yep. Because that that's played such a big role into what they're going to be doing. And what other coach besides Vlatko Indonovsky was going to get what he did out of such an injury-stricken team? Um, I, th- I still think that the Thorns have the pieces to be a challenger. They just have to figure out what went wrong this season. Uh, maybe need an injection of, of new blood. But they have the talent, on, at least on paper. Um I don't know. I'm not sure. Chicago's well, Parsons, got some... Parsons was pretty pretty honest afterwards. He talked about they were going to rework their roster. So I think he knew there were some players he wasn't particularly fond of by the end of the season. Do you guys think the 6 nothing loss to the Courage was a symptom of the fact that they were going the wrong way, or do you think that 6 nothing loss crushed their soul and they never recovered? Both? Good question. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's, it's chicken, both. Chicken egg. I think they scored one goal after that, maybe? Yeah, I thought, because I remember thinking the game after that they were going to just roar back, and and they didn't ever at any point in time. They they did enough in the early part of this, the year to, to make the playoffs, so they they certainly limped into it. And I, I, I don't think they ever recovered, but I also think that they kind of had a really bad game coming for some time. All right, here's the other uh, Dan Smith comment. Injuries, a rookie stepping up to anchor the offense. Timely signing of Murphy. P.S. Still no season tickets for sale at Rain FC. They moving to Sacramento. Parentheses, only semi-serious here. Uh, 
I, they're not moving to Sacramento because Sacramento has an ownership group and Leon is moving in to buy the rain. But, you know, this is the sort of thing that when you go silent on everything and you don't even have the wherewithal to leak out interesting news, this is these are the things that people start to think about. And this is a this is a rain fan saying, hey, where are the season tickets? But I bet you for every Dan Smith, there's 10 to 20 people who are just going to forget all about them. Yeah, the league's not great about doing tactical leaks when they could. Well, the league and, and the teams themselves, too. I mean, we talk about the league front office a lot, but I think it needs to be mentioned that sometimes it is the teams front offices who aren't doing what they need to be doing as well. This is true. Uh, last one, I believe, from Rainmaster. Liked Rain FC hanging in there despite injuries, disliked injuries, and the offseason radio silence. And nothing on 2020 season tickets yet. So we're not the only ones that are a little bit concerned here about the lack of season ticket. Uh, and just, gen again, just general momentum. Like, give us some sort of news, right? Like, give us a schedule format or just give us anything. Yeah. All right. Long final segment. Any final closing thoughts on 2019 in women's soccer? What a weird year. <laughs> Wasn't it? You know, I asked um, Heather O'Reilly at the final. I was chatting with her at media day. And I said, this seemed like kind of an unusual year. And she said, um, before I answer that, what do you mean by the fact it was unusual? And I told her a couple of things. And she said, that's interesting. But uh, from the player's perspective, we kind of feel like every year is really weird. So, yeah. I don't know. Was, yeah. I mean, but yeah, it would be unusual. I, you know, Chelsea, I'm with you. I'd like to see some teams move up and down the table a little bit more next season. I don't have a problem with the courage continuing to dominate because I really appreciate how they've done it and how they've gone about it, but it would be nice to see somebody new kind of get in that mix. John, any closing thoughts? I, I honestly think the year went pretty fast. It feels like just a few weeks ago that me, you, Chelsea, Jeff, you know, and everybody was at the draft. So um, it's been 12 months, but, uh, you know, uh, we're ready to move into a new year already. Well, if you think that's fast, once you hit New Year's, it comes at you very fast because you got the draft coming up on the 16th of January. So uh, we will be back on the other side of New Year's, and we'll have more great Equalizer podcast content for you, and we'll be fast and furious into that draft, and hopefully by that point, which will be, I guess, three weeks from now, we will know how many teams there are going to be. We'll know the draft order. Maybe we'll have some trades and some mixing and matching of the draft picks. Uh, but right now, it's still Orlando sitting on that first overall pick. Uh, so thanks to both of you for all of your uh, great work on the podcast this year. Look forward to doing more of it in 2020. For Chelsea Bush and John Halloran, I'm Dan Lawletta. We'll see you next year on the Equalizer podcast.